Welcome back and thank you for tuning in to Yusuf on Security, the cybersecurity podcast for everyday defender from analyst to the C-suits in plain English. Well, 2023 came and is now gone. In this final episode, we are unwinding the tape to go back to our most popular episodes. If you ever wondered what are the most listened to episodes, this is the answer. I'm sure you will find them beneficial as our listeners did. And we won't cover the latest news this time to give room to the content and it's mostly quiet this time anyway and nothing really has flared up like some recent years. All that coming up next on this final 2023 episode. This is Yusuf on Security episode 152 recorded Saturday 30th of December 2023. Recap of the most popular episodes of 2023. Let's kick off with a recap and we will kick off with the most popular episode and that goes to episode 105. The title of the episode was Be Prepared for the Next Password Manager's Breach. And this was released back in February the 4th, 2023. Have a listen. In today's modern technology and online presence, attacks are frequent and data breaches are inevitable. But data breach is not only about organizations. Data breach also affects you and me, the typical layman on the street. So data breach, and in particular those including passwords, personal password for websites, applications, and resources that you use every day, are essentially a magnet to the bad guys. And they really are increasing because it's the key to the kingdom. Breach on a specific organization and them losing data is one thing, but when your passwords, and that's in plural, are leaked or broken into, it can take a long time for you to recover because it means you have to go through a stack of password after password to know exactly which might actually be targeted. And remember, the attackers are not going to waste time to go after every single one of the password that they got their hands on. You know, the recent unfortunate situation of LastPass, which resulted a huge number of people, vault, meaning the the file that contains all the passwords have been taken out of LastPass organization and it's out there and there's nothing much you can do unless you obviously had done the job of preventing the attacker to ever getting hold of the master password through different means whatever that is and they have the database and they're going to spend huge amount of energy resources but also thought in order to go after the accounts that they think will give them a great return of investment. They won't go after everyone. What stops them getting into the password that they went after is the strength of the password and the thought that the owner of the password has put before the breach. And this is what this episode is all about. How to be prepared in the eventual breach of your account or your password manager. The first thing you do is to question the strength of your password and if the strength of the password is weak 
you need to obviously understand what strength of a password is try to find out what a strong password is and a strong password should be really long enough it shouldn't be four three five characters it should be at least 15 plus up to maybe 32 characters long that are complex now the problem is complexity and human brain do not mix we are not good at remembering random stuff and i'm going to drill a little bit what i mean by random because we're going to bring terminology pertaining to cryptography into the mix in a minute which i will explain in an easy understandable fashion so that's the first thing so that at least in case the password is lost your password is strong enough the other thing is you need to have a look at if your existing password has appeared in previous breaches and there is a great resource that i have quoted before and is the website called have i been pwned Com. If you don't know how to spell that, it's H-A-Viva-Victor, E-I-B-E-N, B -E -N, and then P-W-N-E-D.com. There will be a link in the show notes. And you can enter your email address to see if your email address has appeared in a already breached database. And then you can go ahead and do something about it. Many websites and, of course, applications need to be able um, to know what your password is in order to make sure you are the one logging into their resources, for example. And unfortunately, as a result, they have stored your username and password, which essentially is not a good measure in today's threat landscape. You have heard the terminology called zero knowledge. And especially in the breach that has happened to LastPass, it, they have implemented somewhat what is called a zero knowledge technique, which basically means they don't know the password, your password, because that's the ultimate way to prevent anyone who attacks the organization to get hold of it. If the database doesn't even contain your password, there is nothing to find in the database, typically and your password will live in a database, essentially, it means it will get in the hands of the attackers. Unfortunately, if the organization makes a mistake. And in that case, if they store password in a database, it makes them valuable in the eyes of the attacker to target and to then breach until they get a hold of that. And unfortunately, they are relentless and they will keep coming like waves. Now let's go about a detail of how you can strengthen your password. The first thing is, there is no way you're going to remember 2532 characters which are truly random. And what I mean by truly random is, they should not be essentially words of a language. You might not speak English, and people who are non-English speaking typically think, oh, you know, I can use my own language. Um, a word that is derived from that. The attackers, unfortunately, have built databases of all possible language that you can think of. And if you're using a word that is derived from a spoken language that is modern and is still in use, then it might actually be in one of those databases. So stay away from those, especially English language. Once that is done, don't make the um, randomness very easy to remember. That's the second step. 
Now, intuitionally, you will be saying, well, if, I, if you're telling me don't make it rememberable, how am I going to remember if the thing is so complex and long in the first place? And that's where you use something called password manager. But password managers can be breached. And this is what this show is about how to be prepared in order to really make it foolproof so that in case even you get breached and the password manager that you use is breached then at least your password still is difficult for the attacker to reverse the technology that is being used to actually then strengthen your password so we're going to be touching a number of technology so the first one is hashing and hashing is specifically is just really taking you know your password for example if you choose a password you know one two three four five it will produce what is called a hash it will put through an algorithm uh, cryptographically which will then generate a fix random characters and typically they store those characters but it's very easy to reverse so something else has to be done and you're not going to be using one two three four you're going to be using something very long regardless the output will always be fixed and it's a result called hash and there's a hashing algorithm which is a mathematically um, written coding that is easy to generate but it's extremely impossible to reverse and we say impossible in today's standard of technology because there is nothing called imp impossible when it comes to technology everything is impossible as time goes by now once that is done um, it, it, it puts some um, protection on the list but obviously that is not a secure means so every hashed password um, in a in a breached database will essentially can easily be um, you know manipulated and if the hash that is being used and there are different hashes it can be reversed and you know SHA-1 for example um, is a hash that is being you know proven to be weak and these organizations do not use such thing they use for example SHA-256 or others um, to make the hashing that they want to do on those passwords now the other thing you need to obviously do is not to use the same password for various websites which is very easy to understand because if one of the websites is breached all the websites that you actually used can easily be um, also useless to you because the attacker, especially if you are a target, they will go after and actually log on to those websites. Unfortunately, in the situation where something is breached, like typical organizations are, um, and your passwords that, um, that you used um, are you know stored somehow and also the websites that you visited are also stored now if you have then had a password with multiple websites it's then easy for the attacker to go to every website and reuse that so reusing the password is easy for the attacker to exploit you all your resources that you've actually been using but actually although it's easy for you to choose a reuse it, it should not be done because you want the attacker to really work hard for them to breach your 
confidential information. So having a password manager allows you to then not to reuse password because you're going to be generating it and you don't need to remember all the others. And typically the way password managers will work, of course, is you need to just remember and make extremely long, um, you know, 25, um, 32, etc. Um, long password, truly random, and then you lock that one. And then thereafter, after you unlock the password manager with your super long and complex password, you let it generate the others of all the other passwords or websites to then be extremely long and you don't need to worry about them. That's the benefit of it. So there is no need for you then to say, I want to reuse because I want to remember. You, no, you don't need to remember all the other passwords. You just need to remember the actual password that unlocks your password manager, the vault, essentially. We come now to the topic of cracking passwords and the benefit of a long. Now, uniqueness and randomness of the long password is difficult for the attackers because it asks them to do a lot of effort. Now, effort meaning cracking. Cracking a short password can be done easily by modern computers today by simply guessing all possible combination of, of, of letters, numbers, and special characters of that length. Actually, the attackers are built what is called rainbow tables, which they have combined and generated all possible passwords because if they get hold of the fingerprint, the SHA-256, the, SHA the, 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 um, the algorithm that makes, uh, transforms your password into a fixed length, they've already generated all possible password that can generate a typically used password. So therefore, if they then scan the database that they have, that contains the hashes, and then they found one of the ones they generated, and they are equal, they know exactly the password. So making it random and long and unique really defeats that purpose for them to achieve what they wanted to do. Because as the password gets longer, the number of possible combination grows exponentially. This is why a short, for example, even unique looking one, seven characters, for example, um, can be cracked by an average laptop in a day. But a password that is extremely long and complex, it can take centuries hundreds of centuries if a machine that is very beefy to actually keep going at it. And that's why really making it long, unique and complex, you know, takes the bar too high for the attacker to clear. Now, the typical machines that we use, the modern machines that we use um, are um, equipped with um, functions that can generate what is called randomness. Um, randomness is what is called entropy in cryptography and it uses for choosing each character of a password you know a password that has a lot of randomness is chaotic to remember but also is difficult for the attackers to guess or their machines to come up with and it will take a long time and long time means a lot of energy and a lot of processing power and therefore lots of money. So not everyone is equipped to, to crack something difficult. You have to have a purpose and the resources to crack the password if it's long, if it has a long entropy. What is an entropy? Entropy is a measure of the amount of randomness um, that exists in something, you know, a disorder. Now, if the password is a 
an English word, it's not random. It's easy. If it's the word password, it's easy to remember. It's pass and then it's word. It makes sense. But if it's gibberish and extremely mixed up, then there is a disorder or randomness. This is called entropy in a in a in a system. A simple way to understand entropy is through the following example.、Um, imagine of a room with perfectly ordered stacks of books. The entropy of this room is low, and what we want is we want high entropy, meaning because the books are neatly organized, the entropy is low. If you are randomly scattering these books. You know, throwing them left, right, and center, the entropy will increase. Meaning, the disorder and the randomness of placement of the books will increase because there is now more disorder in the room. So, in general, entropy always tend to increase over time, leading to a greater degree of disorder in in a typical system. And, and this is in in the cryptography world. Now, this is why, for example, a Um, a, a broken cup cannot magically put itself back, or maybe a, if you spill something on the floor, it cannot easily put back in the cup. It's impossible, and this is essentially what I'm describing. It's called what is、um, what is called a laws of thermodynamics. That it it normally dictates that you know as the randomness and the disorder increases,、um, it increases as time goes by. Now, what we want a password is have to have a high entropy. What they use、um, is a、um, what is called a、um, password key derivation function. So, when you type your passwords, this is actually another level of strength that is added、um, by the technologies such as password managers. And what they do is they use what is called a password key derivation function. You might heard of. KDF or PKDF, which is a mathematical algorithm that is used to turn a password into a key, into a cryptography key. And you always ask, well, if the password manager I'm using is、um, don't know my password, how are they allowing me to unlock? Well, this is what they're actually doing. They're not storing your password. They are taking, you know, elements of、um, fingerprint of the password that you generated, and then they. Pass through or apply a password key derivation function. So they derive, they create a key、um, from your password that you yourself came up with, and you're the only one who knows the real password. They don't. They generate something that is based on your password, but not your password. That is a key to encrypt your vault, to encrypt your the content of your password manager. A password by itself is typically not strong enough,、um, and they don't trust that. Even though you might have, you know, super long password,、um, and you know, it will be very hard for them just to use it as a key. And it will be giving the attackers the key to the kingdom if the organization that is owning the password manager is breached. So it's often too short the password that people actually generate, and it's also too easily guessable, and and on top of it, not random enough. Meaning there is no disorder, there is no、um, randomness, i.e., the entropy is low. So the key derivation function takes the password as an input, 
when the user types it, and performs and puts through a series of mathematical operations, let's, let's stay there, um, to generate then a very strong secure key that can be used for encryption and decryption of your vault, of the file that contains your passwords, a list of the password. Typically, it's, it's, um, it's XML file. Like if you go to your password manager and you say export, when you export the file is an XML file. And you can you can change it to, to, to various forms as well, such as um, common separated file. So some common features of this function, the um, key derivation function, um, include what is called salting. And salting is another technique, right? Um, adding random data to the password before they then you know come up with a key and put through the um, KDF, the password key derivation function, is an extra element to make it even more random. And then they iterate through a system um, algorithm many, many times. Why? Now, they made sure that the password is extremely difficult to guess. You know, the entropy is high. Now, through going through what is called an iteration, and I'm going to tell you why you should do something about it in your password manager. They go through an iteration algorithm many times to slow down the attacker who are trying to guess the password because making it hard is one thing, but if the technology now moves forward and the computation power becomes cheap and they have obtained the password of LastPass, for example, because that's going to stay out there in the wild forever. And unfortunately, as time goes forward, as time goes by, technology will become stronger and stronger, cheaper, and therefore that database will be becoming more and more vulnerable. And that's why you should change your passwords if you are a LastPass user, because technology will become stronger in a blink of a second. Meaning, you know, before you know it, technology has moved forward to allow that database that was once strong, even the strong password, to really be easily crackable. So in order now to slow down and prevent that inevitable issue, they put through an iteration. Now, if you go to your password manager, you will be able to see a setting that allows you to put a very stupidly long number, right? So typical um, password managers will say 100,000 iteration, right? And even the password that we're talking about last pass, it was said most of the users were set to 100,100 iteration to slow down in the eventual attack, and this is what LastPass has done about it, and it's helping the unfortunate situation in which we find ourselves in now, um, to slow those database, um, those files that's been stolen to be cracked by modern technology. Future doesn't look bright because the database will always be vulnerable and becoming weaker, more and more vulnerable, um, but to slow down today, um, they allowed um, the function to be extremely high. Now, typically, like in NIST, um, the National Institute and um, Standard, um, suggests that you should pump it high. And to be quite honest, why wouldn't you put to a million, for example, iteration rather than 100,000? And I would advise you to put it higher. And what is the impact, you might say, if you put this higher, would it actually impact my password uh, way of working? It will add a negligible delay because you will notice when you put in your master password and your vault is decrypted by the derived key, um, then you will be able to maybe wait two or three more seconds 
and that's it. And I really think it's a good return of investment to wait two or three more seconds than actually allowing an attacker to crack the password very easily, right? So this um, iteration algorithm allows the attacker to really waste a lot of more resources in order to then gain the password. Now, you might actually, you will be able to hear password key derivation, derivation function, KDF, or password-based key derivation function, um, and they both refer to the same thing. For example, a password key derivation function, KDF, is a specific type um, um, of KDF that is designed to turn a password into a key, into a cryptographic key. Now, the term password-based in the PPKDF, meaning password-based key derivation function, is used to emphasize that the input um, to, the, to the function, to the KDF, is a password, as opposed to something other than a password, because these algorithms are used not just for password, they are used for other things, so therefore they can derive um, some password out of randomness. Now, therefore, a password uh, KDF, for example, typically performs a series of, as I said, of operations on the password, such as adding random data, which is called salt, performing a hash function, that's one way to create a sort of a long stupid strings um, which are random that are not easy to go the other way to put back to the original data that generated that random characters now and 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 then the 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 um the, the, the password is, is put through a repeating process many, many times. Therefore, the iteration, this is what I meant by iteration. The goal is to make it computationally infeasible for the attacker. That's what I said, for an attacker to guess the password from the key. Now, in summary, essentially, password KDF or, or um, PPKDF, password-based key derivation functions, are interchangeable and refer to the same thing is essentially a way a technique an algorithm that derives a cryptographic key from a password and you might be asking you know what do you mean by computational invisible I mean in what it means that it will take an extremely long time for a um, for something to to basically really attack the password if it's really well done. And in the context of this function that I talked about, password key derivation function, um, computationally invisible means that it will take too much time or computer power. Um, as I referred to, referred to earlier, cost a lot of money for an attacker to guess the original password from the derived key. Now, a strong password um, is essentially designated such as even an attacker obtaining you know, um, the, the derived key would not be able to really go back to the original um, um, password. In practice, essentially, this function is designed to to make things a lot harder for um, for the attackers to really clear the bar in order to then maybe obtain the password. You can read more about these um, functions and techniques, um, but I think it's sufficient just to stay at this um, explanation for the purpose of time and also the depth that I want to go to.
you might actually read um, this techniques are also referred to in the cryptographic world um, key stretching and, and I think that I found that more descriptive you know stretching the key you know the, you came up with something and it's going to be stretched to make it a better to make it more robust and stronger and this is these are techniques that I use to make a possibly weak key password typically a password or passphrase more secure against brute force attack Right, and I haven't used the word brute force attack because I want to keep to, to keep it to this level. Um, is to really allow the attackers to walk away once they see the difficulties of cracking the password, because there is a tendency and a um, relationship of them attacking the password versus the resources that they have. If they are determined and they really want, then they will come out with the resources, especially, you know, nation state level. But a typical opportunistic attacker, when things are really stretched well and secured, they're going to really knock on another door that is easily to get into and say, this one is too hard to crack. To summarize, um, to prepare yourself in case of a password manager breach, you can take the following steps. The first thing you really should do, number one, Enable multi-factor authentication, MFA, for your password manager account immediately. Go to the settings and increase the number of iterations to something not less than at least 200,000, if not 350. Avoid using the same password for multiple accounts, multiple websites. Regularly check for any suspicious activities on your account, of course. Keep a backup of your password stored securely, such as an encrypted device or a paper that you can really put somewhere very safe. And of course, consider using Password Manager that offers zero-knowledge architecture, meaning they don't know the password that you came up with and you are the only one who knows. But be very careful because if you lose that password, the game is over. No one is going to help you. But if you are a targeted or someone who's susceptible to be breached, it's better to do that and really come up with something that can actually be strong because the tendency of you forgetting is lower than the tendency of someone um, breaching you. Which means that the service provider cannot access your password really when you, get, um, when you forget the password. And number six, stay informed and follow security updates from your password manager. You need to keep an eye on because it's an ever-changing landscape. And seven, and lastly, regularly review and change your password. Now remember, while password managers are secure and convenient, it's important to understand that no system is completely immune to breach, and it's always a good practice to have a backup plan in place. This is what I thought this show should be done today, so that you can be prepared for the eventual reality that might actually come true one day. On with the show, and the next most popular episode was 107, Understanding CVSS Scoring System. This was released back in February 18th, 2023. Have a listen and enjoy. Understanding CVSS, also known as Common Vulnerability Scoring System. Let's get started. Before we dive into the details of CVSS scoring system, it's important to understand the differences between CVSS and CVE. CVE stands for Common Vulnerability and Exposures, which is a publicly available list of known security vulnerabilities 
and exposures. Vulnerability meaning loopholes exist on the, in the software that can be taken advantage of. Exposure meaning it will expose the security, the aspect that governs the tenets of security, that's the confidentiality, maybe the availability and the integrity of the system, one or everything. Now it's maintained, CVE that is, it's maintained by the meter organization, a non-profit organization that operates federally funded research and development centers. Federally funded meaning, I'm referring to the US here. And CVE assigns a unique identifier called CVEID to each vulnerability, which makes it easier to track and manage those vulnerabilities across multiple systems and applications. Those numbers typically starts with, you know, the three characters, CVE, dash, and then the year, like 2023, dash, and then a number. For example, on the 14th of February this year, that is... Five days ago, Microsoft released their second Tuesday patch that they normally push out every month. And one of the top of the list is CVE-2023, that's the year, dash 21528. And earlier on the update piece, I referred to a number of CVEs related to the vulnerability of Atlassian. So that's essentially what the CVE is. Now, in contrast, CVSS, on the other hand, is a framework for scoring and assessing the severity of vulnerability. It provides a standardized method of rating vulnerabilities, and those are based on the impact and the level of effort required to exploit them. So how much power, resources, time are you going to throw at this in order to pull off? If something is extremely difficult to pull off, then, you know, it's a less of worry for a lot of organization, except if you are targeted. While CVE identifies and tracks now the vulnerabilities, the CVSS assigns a scoring to each vulnerability to help, you know, companies really prioritize their response and how they need to determine the level of resources required to fix those vulnerabilities. Now, both the CVE and CVE and CVSS work together to provide a, a sort of a complete picture of managing security vulnerability. Um, in this podcast, of course, we will focus on the CVSS scoring system, um, its components, and how it is used in practice to assess the severity of security vulnerability in general. We will also discuss how the CV scores can be used to prioritize and manage those vulnerabilities effectively. So CVSS is a framework um, and is used to rank the characteristics, of course, of the severity of, a, of the software at hand, you know, that has weaknesses. The system creates what is called a basis score to start off with, and that rates vulnerability between two, two digits, zero to 10, depending on the severity, you know, it could be as high as 10 or maybe as high, you know, as low as two or three. Now, there's a grouping that is actually um, made as well, uh, which consists of a base, and we're going to come into these details, temporal, um, and also environmental metrics. We will go into these metrics in a little more detail, but let's first have a look at the overall methodology just to get a broad understanding of the concept before we go into the 
you know, into the nitty-gritty bit, shall we say. Now, the scoring, the, this scoring system uh, provides a um, straightforward numbering system to start off with, right? Let's deal with the easy part. And those are composed of um, a basis score, and it's broken down into five groups. So, 0, 0.0, if something scores that, that means no threat to the system. So there's no much vulnerabilities in there. So any applications, when vendors release, essentially have 0.0 to their eyes. Now, then if something is discovered, it will be assessed and it can be assigned to a low um, severity. And that is between 0.1 to 3.9. So anything between those two numbers is considered to be low. There is a um, grading scale of from minimum to high impact um, when it comes to within that range, the 0.1 to 3.9 as well. Even though it's low, you know, 0.2, it's different than 3.9. So within that group itself, there is a, a, a scaling system that is used, and we're going to get into that. Then the third one is 4.0 to 6.8. And if that is a rating that it been assigned, that is a medium, essentially, scoring. And then 7.0 to 8.9, which is high. And then we've got 9 to 10, which is critical. Now, there has been various versions of um, the CVSS rating methodology. The one that we are doing, dealing with here is version 3. Now, the lower the score, the less risky the vulnerabilities, essentially. So if something is scored, 10 score, um, then that needs to be addressed immediately because it, it, it's remote code execution included, meaning what you normally will read as RCE or someone can easily execute something remotely without being in the system. Now, let's get into the component of the CVSS score uh, methodology. The um, a US-based non-profit organization um, basically produces this, and the organization is called um, FIRST, so you can go to first.org, um, and they produce this methodology. With the latest iteration is version 3.1, to be exact. Um, and the core metrics are the base, as I said, um, which can be impacted um, by the temporal and the environment metrics. So those themselves that I've mentioned earlier are interrelated. The base score um, uses a vector um, to basically guide um, security analysts um, to make sure the severity of the application that they're dealing with it merits the right responses. And mostly the cybersecurity practitioners um, utilize this framework really to evaluate um, what kind of activity we need to assign, um, you know, the base score utilization, the environmental score, and the temperament. So let's have a look at the um, basis score. The basis scoring operates using 0 to 10 scale, um, and it deals with the vulnerability of the software um, and this is not affected by time or environment, right? So when, it, when, when a base score is assigned, nothing else is needed. Uh, maybe the vulnerability needs more time or something needs to be run and it needs time. Or maybe there has to be certain conditions, environment to be created for this to be pulled off. The basis score doesn't need to actually be aware of or associated with time or environment for its impact and 
its exploitability, shall we say. Now, understanding the underlying definition uh, and the broader definition of this definitely then helps um, the um, practitioners to focus more on what matters most at that particular time. There is a um, exploitability um, scoring as, as well, um, and is derived from the aspect of the individual vulnerability um, component that the application or software has. The easier that the component is to attack, the higher the CVSS, you know, based on version three severity. Now the metrics used are. Um, in, in, within this exploitability scoring is attack vector. So when you actually look at the really detailed um, um, information of CVSS, you will see AV or AC or PR or UI. And AV stands for attack vector. And this ranks how difficult it is for hackers, attackers, to target this vulnerability. What kind of vectors do they need? Then there is an attack complexity. Um, and this normally is, um, um, you know, what the attacker must overcome in order to pull the, this off, the complexity, right? Privilege um, required, you know, that's the credential access um, needed for the attacker to exploit this vulnerability, right? Sometimes I said um, in previous episodes, um, most of the attacks normally end up with a user machine, which typically if you have done your homework well and you haven't assigned really a admin account to everyone, then of course privilege escalation is a must for the attacker to move forward, to do lateral movement, to do the exploitation, right? So privilege escalation shortened as PR is what allows the attacker to exploit the vulnerabilities. So a vulnerability with needing privilege escalation is less severe of a vulnerability that doesn't need, for example. So this is important to know. And then user interaction. And, and this ranks how difficult the target is um, to subvert um, and aid it by the attacker. Right? Does the attacker actually need um, the help of the user? Uh, typically, normally, by the way, um, using social engineering. Does the attack actually need to involve the user or not? Um, and if you see the UI, user interaction is required. If it's a missing UI, then that means the user interaction is not required. So those are the exploitability, um, the AV, the AC, the PR, and the UI, meaning attack vector, attack complexity, privilege required, and user interaction. The other one is the impact um, scoring and, and the impact scoring is used to to really find out the severity of the actual component um, that is made out of of this system that is being attacked and this is used to calculate the impact of the system. The first is through four of them: um, authorization scope. So this normally gives a degree of impact a component can have on other part of the system. So on its own, maybe it doesn't cause uh, much um, scaled attack or subvert the whole organization. But if it does, then of course this is major, major issue. So that's authorization um, scope. Confidentiality and integrity and availability are the other three. And which is the you know the security triad, you know, CIA or ICIA or AIC, whichever way you refer to. So confidentiality basically is the level um, of um, authority that the exploit gives to the attacker, right? So how much can the attacker expose of the, uh, you know, the data? Do they actually have full access to the content of what they, the file that they landed in or the server or the database? And therefore there's no more confidentiality. So the organization has lost complete confidentiality of the data. Um, for example, if you don't have any encryption on 
um, data that are at rest and, and, and a breach occurs. You know, that's a full disclosure, loss of complete confidentiality. Integrity um, is, is something that is more sinister. So this basically um, allows the attacker uh, to corrupt the data or modify data um, that they have you know, access and this is more severe because um, in, in, in a really highly targeted attack and an and APT style, integrity is very hard to really detect. Um, very few systems really have means to keep an eye on you know, data that is at great speed usage um, and check integrity. You know, laptop servers, those are fine, but really high databases and things, when they are breached, how much modification can you detect is, is, is a tall order. It is possible, it's not impossible, but, but this is big boy stuff. So integrity essentially is the degree of corruption or modifiability that the attacker, the attacker can have on the accessed application or software. And then the last one of the security triad is the availability, right? You know, loss of availability, meaning DDoS, no access to the file server, to the database. So that's the impact um, scoring. Now, there is a difference between the base and the temporal scoring, and we're going to get into that in a minute. And CVSS essentially details information about vulnerabilities impact on affected systems. Um, and, you know, companies have to learn to prioritize software vulnerability, right? Because you don't have a, you know, infinite amount of resources. At the end of the day, the amount of vulnerability that are going out um, far exceeds the amount of manpower and organizations that, that, um, that has. You can just keep an eye on just the Microsoft Patch Tuesday and see how much vulnerability is pushed out to us every single Tuesday. Um, and then you extrapolate that multiple application and software and different operating system and you can see you're really fighting a, a tidal wave with very minimal um, manpower. They need, of course, to calculate the CVSS um, score before taking into account the environmental factors and what has actually been. And this ranking um, calculation, I should say, of basis score um, basically helps them. Now, there is a temporal score, and temporal score will, will, will is, is the metric used to determine the base score. And this score includes and is made out of what is called exploit code maturity. And this is the likelihood that, that an exploit will be leveraged based on existing script found on the internet, right? So as long as the exploit sits there and the vendor doesn't fix and the industry hackers um, become more aware of, the more it will become more impactful. So the majority, the, the majority of that doesn't decrease. It becomes more and more an issue. So exploit code maturity, referred to as E in the CVSS parlance, um, is that likelihood of the code basically really mature? Is it actually uh, mature enough? Has there been a lot of um, demos? Has there been a lot of um, essentially proof of concept that you can easily download and use it and go and attack others. So that is what is actually capturing. And something with maturity of high is, of course, more severe than something that just came out and, you know, not a lot of things have actually been done with it. Then there is a remediation level, which ranks the ease that an exploit can be remediated. And, you know, we know, you know, if something is difficult, we tend to delay um, to work on. And therefore, if something is actually really easy to fix, then you go ahead and do it. So it's, 
it's really good system, the fact that it captured the remediation level. So if something that is really hard, you need the, the amount of resources that you need to basically ask the management to say, I need this, this and that and that amount of time because this takes a bit of time to actually pull itself together. Then there's the report confidence. And this is the reliability that vulnerability exists. Um, and, and of course, there is a whole industry, by the way, that deals with, with all of these information that I'm actually pouring over your head, which deals with um, um, the, the severity, the scoring, the prioritization, etc. Um, for example, um, I handle within my job a vulnerability um, um, risk-based vulnerability management and prioritization system called Kenat Security, um, which was acquired um, by Cisco in July 2021. Um, that kind of system essentially really boils down what matters most to, the, to your organization and how much um, is really needed from a resource point of view. Um, what is the scoring system outside of the CVSS? Because this is generic, what we are describing. But that kind of, you know, kind of security, that kind of application software can easily be um, tuned so that it actually deals with your own internal assets, with scoring and your metrics and how confident you are about this system and how much impact that system would have in the organization if, if it's actually been taken down god forbid um, and all of this um, helps that kind of um, um, decision making so in this cvss is doing somewhat um, that kind of activity but of course something that is actually more towards um, in looking in the organization is much more beneficial so the benefit of using the CVS scoring system um, is essentially um, to provide a universal framework, right? Not, not unique to your organization, but something universal, generic, that all industry can be used to really gorge the severity and the cybersecurity vulnerabilities, right? So uh, common practice should be allowed, of course, for each solution providers to use their own system, right? Um, but at, at the end of the day, every organization needs something that is more... To their, to their requirement rather than more generic, right? So, um, and of course, without consistent baseline, essentially SOC analysts um, would have to juggle with a multiple solution approach to determine which vulnerability should be remediated first and which should not be or delayed. Now, with the development of the CVSS scoring system, um, those SOC and IT service provider can use this framework, essentially, to deal with the prioritization aspect. And this means that Private businesses and organization and government, etc., can rely on something that is more consistent rather than everyone coming up with their own um, numbering. That would have been a chaos. A, um, another benefit of this scoring system um, um, is the standardization um, of it. And you know, that meets basically the security regulations imposed by by sector that you are adhering to, government, finance, etc., legal, right? Most compliance framework require a standard ranking system like the CVSS um, for the categorization of, of vulnerabilities, of, of course, so that you can then get credit when you are audited, for example. And in the attack vector, you have network um, and adjacent, but also local or physical. Now, the network, if you see the N, the vulnerable component, is bound to the network stack on the set um, of possible attackers' um, ability to exploit um, network-based um, activities. Adjacent basically means the vulnerable component is bound to the network stack, but the attack is, is limited at the protocol level, for example, and it's not necessarily beyond that. 
And then the local, and this means the network, um, the attacker essentially have to have a bad fire, read, write, um, execute capability. Um, either the, the attacker exploit the vulnerability by accessing the target system locally, or the attacker relies on a user interaction by you know, typically another person. And, and physical pretty much really um, is what it sounds. The attacker physically touches or manipulates the vulnerable component, um, therefore has full access. Um, and that's just to, to, to complement um, on the vector side of the thing. Now, there is a scope um, that are also captured in this. And this metric captures whether the vulnerability in one uh, vulnerable software or application impacts um, and has resourceful impact in a component that goes beyond the targeted um, software um, and has a security impact. Now, if the scope is basically um, that it would have an impact on others, of course, then it has major um, criticality um, if it hasn't. For example, a database used, um, um, if I give you an example, um, used by a certain piece of software um, is, let's say, part of the application, really, um, because when you are doing the front end, um, it's meaningless if it doesn't have the database, um, and therefore the security scope um, goes all the way to the database, even if the database has its own security authority, etc. Um, and, you know, the mechanism controlling access to that database record um, is, is, is essentially going to be subverted by the fact that this application, which is the front end, is being compromised and that's the that's the issue um, and if I give you another practical example that I touched on the um, news piece um, at the beginning of the of this show is when we're talking about the Atlassian and Envoy that's Envoy is a provider um, um, of um, office management services to Atlassian and they have an app now the application essentially then is developed and given to Atlassian um, employees and they have login and maybe they're using um, authentication via the Atlassian network, essentially referred to as um, SAML, um, and it basically allows them to use third-party app but authenticated by the company itself, Atlassian. Then, given the need to know and permission, that employee will be able to access then the resources that has been provided by Atlassian through this app. Now, if the app is subverted um, and being compromised, of course, you know, the, the actual resources, meaning we can refer to as maybe a database, maybe a floor plan, as, as, as it happens to be in this case, will be accessible. And, and therefore, any other system beyond that, um, and, you know, there is a concatenation of all sorts of application and software organizations put together to the points not a single person one single person can understand the whole thing um, therefore will be impacted um, and this is scope is critical piece of um, parameters in the CVSS score to make sure that we need to understand how far the attacker can push because they will push as far as possible right until it breaks or they cannot um, or they think they will be discovered they're going to keep on pushing and actually digging deep um, within the organization. So to put all of them together, let's have a look at one of the CVE released this month, February 14th, and is CVE, CVE-2023-21528. And that is a Microsoft SQL Server Remote Code Execution Vulnerability. 
Now, Microsoft looks at the metrics of the basis score metrics and the temporal score metrics. For that CVE, it's called base score metrics 8 and temporal score metrics 3. Let's dive into each one of those and use essentially the information that I provided earlier. I will not use the abbreviation, but you can abbreviate it yourself, at least you've got the full name. So base score metrics first, and that's called eight for the CVE. Attack vector, local, and that can be local um, exploitation. Attack complexity, low. Privilege required, low. That means it's quite severe because there's no need for much of a privilege. User interaction, none. So that's really bad. Scope and changed. So it doesn't actually change much if it goes beyond the targeted software. Confidentiality high, integrity high, availability high. So that means it impacts severely the security aspect of the uh, um, application concern, in this case, Microsoft SQL Server. And it's a remote code execution vulnerability. So um, confidentiality will be exposed so they can see every content of the database because SQL is a database, by the way. Integrity, um, they can be able, they will be able to change it, right? With also low privilege, no required of high privilege in this case. Availability, they can really take the database offline if they wish to do so. So that's the base matrix. Temporal score matrix, three. And exploit code maturity is unproven, so they don't know yet at the time of publication, and this was um, five days ago. Remediation level, official fix. There is an official fix of the remediation. And report confidence confirmed, so it's not really smoke and mirror. It's something that is out there that can be used. So that's an example of how you can put all of that information together to really interpret an actual CVE released um, for a current um, highly impactful, um, which remote code execu executable um, vulnerability for a, an existing database, Microsoft SQL. Now, if you go to msrc.microsoft.com forward slash update hyphen guidance, um, you will be able to see all the CVEs that's been released on um, for the Microsoft operating system. Use that as an example just to really um, take off and understand all of this. And by the way, everything that I've explained, you will be able to go in there as well and actually click on one of the CVE. I'll make a link to this article. Make you know, Head on to one of the CVE, click on it, and then scroll down on that page. And when you scroll down on that page, you will be able to see the metrics, base score, and also the temporal score. Essentially, what I was actually reading out loud for this CVE 2023-21528. And the good thing is, on the Microsoft website, you don't need to actually remember all of these. You can just click on attack vector, and then it will actually explain. For example, attack vector. This metric reflects the complex by which vulnerability exploitation is possible, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to repeat everything I said, but if you want to have a quick way of finding out... This is a page that actually really gives you a practical example, a detailed write-up, but also gives you the information of what is a scope stand for, what is the integrity, what is the attack vector, etc. So that's a good resources to have handy. I think that's a lot of information to take in in one shot. Um, maybe we will come back to this um, topic at a later stage, but for now, let's just summarize. CVSS is composed of three groups, basically. It's broken down into three. A base, a temporal, 
and an environmental. Each of them consists of a set of metrics. Um, and these are base metric group is made out of exploitability metrics. And that contains attack factor, attack complexity, privilege required, user interaction, scope, confidentiality impact, integrity impact, and account availability impact. Now, the first, the exploitability metrics is different than the confidentiality, integrity, and availability. The confidentiality, integrity, and availability, which I was referring to the CIA triad or security triad, is referred to the impact metrics here. So that's the base metric. Then there is the temporal metrics, and it's a number of um, categories, which is exploit code maturity, um, remediation level, and the report confidence. And I've detailed each one of these. And then the third element or grouping is the environmental metric group. And that has three things. Modified base metric, basically, you know, if something is going to be modified within this. And then the confidentiality required, requirement, the integrity requirement, and the availability requirement um, within that. And, and that is essentially what CVSS is composed of. So next time you see CVE-2023-1234, it carries far more than the CVE ID. Um, and it contains subcomponent of the things that we've talked about here, which gives a lot of details beyond the actual scoring of that. Now, CVE is one thing, which is the ID assigned to every vulnerability that is reported. And CVSS is the scoring of that. And then it breaks down into a smaller component, as we discovered and talked about in this episode. The next the most popular episode was 103, titled What is NetFlow Protocol Used For? Part 1. And this was released January 21st, 2023. As you have guessed, this is the first part of a two-part series. Let's listen to the first part and then finish off with the second part, which will be 104. Enjoy. NetFlow. What is it good for? Well, let's see it this way. The more you understand about how things communicate on the network, the more likely you are to identify the data that you are seeing. And this normally helps you to really curb the issue with regard to cyber attack. And security solution can help, of course, automate and consolidate information into an easy way to understand in terms of formatting, but also to diagnose and to protect the environment that you are responsible of. But network forensics, like any other tools, require a, you know, going beyond the typical display and feasibility of one single solution. And typically on a layer that is above the network. And really the most, let's say, seasoned um, techies or forensic analysts typically respond to a large number of tools that they are unable to really keep up. And there is no doubt that their expertise is, you know, definitely understanding what is going on on the network, but also understanding the tools and how the tools are operated. So often you find with the tools. And you see, to discern what data these tools are capturing, is it the right data? Is it the right data? Is it 
a way to actually map the issue that you fear most at that particular time, cyber attack? Or is there a way to investigate and maybe to better the network as a whole? So in a nutshell, they need to understand how things communicate. And in order for us to really go into the details of NetFlow, we will start with a basic um, overview, shall we say, of the critical concept of networking. Because after all, NetFlow is a network protocol. So let's have a look at the, those protocols to start off with. The first thing is to, to know, of course, you know, how fast your network is. Right? There are, you know, ports, for example, from zero to 65,535 ports um, that could be used, that communication can be put through. It's not that really critical to memorize or to remember every single port when you see the number. That's really not the, the concept, because at the end of the day, I'm talking about over 65,000 ports here. But what you really should do is should be able to understand um, the ports that are most commonly seen um, day in and day out and what they are used for. And really, as a security analyst or an investigator, for that matter, you need to actually look at specific ports that represent certain, you know, typical traffic that we do see being used, under, you know, for attack. This um, is a common knowledge for everyone to really react when they see a particular port being used. And to help you, you know, reduce that number of ports uh, and the scope um, for which ports to memorize, um, there are around, you know, 1,024 of those 65,000 ports, for example, and they are known for well-known ports that communications typically go through. And those are reserved for commonly utilized applications. And even within those 1,024, um, you have around, probably around 25 to 50 ports um, associated with typically, you know, applications that are seen in the industry and certainly in um, enterprise at large. And therefore, really, is understand. Um, it, it goes without saying to understand um, you know, and to know those applications. Um, you don't have to really memorize all of them, but at least you should have a fake idea when you look at the particular well-known port um, that you should be able to pinpoint those. And, and the protocols that are used are um, typically um, transport layer protocols, such as the, the TCP, right? Transmission Control Protocol, or maybe User data, Datagram Protocol, UDP, because we're talking about network here, so those are the tip of the of the spear that we need to actually keep an eye on. And the following are a general list um, of the top, for, let's say, um, ports that you definitely see um, mostly. Right, you see port twenty one file transfer protocol. FTP, right? Um, 22, secure shell. So you should be able to know that. Um, 23, telnet or, you know, remote logon to a, an application or a service. And the well-known SMTP, 25, simple mail transfer protocol. The DNS, the domain name service or system, 53. And of course, 80, the unprotected um, hypertext transfer, um, transfer protocol, you know, used to greatly here absolutely but in a secure fashion these days and the old pop 3 110 uh, port 110 post office protocol known 
and, and network and use transfer protocol, definitely not much used for relics and people who want to, you know, go about nostalgia, nostalgia, 119, not really needed at all. Um, yeah, you do need this one, NTP, Network Time Protocol, 123 that is. And of course, um, IMAP for those of us actually still relying on pulling, um, you know, messaging from um, freely available um, email service provider, um, Internet Message Access Protocol, IMAP. Um, that's on 143. Um, the SNMB protocol, Symbol, ne- Symbol Network Management Protocol, um, typically for managing network equipment, 161. Um, and of course, um, Internet Relay Chat, not seen much on by users, but it's out there. 194, 194 that is, yep. And 443, um, HTTPS, predominantly used um you know, are the great scale um, alongside, of course, um, DNS and SMTP. Now, those are the the, the, the basic um, application and associated um, ports, certainly. And also, I think before we go into the NetFlow, let's have a look at some tools, um, really, that are typically used where people at large, um, you know, 90 plus percent rely on. And every network is different, of course. But most have a common set of applications, shall we say, from typically known leading vendors. And those are designed to catch, of course, the type of reporting they could provide and where they see and they sit in the cybersecurity um, attacks. And, and these technology, for example, could be any technology, IPS, uh, firewalls, etc. But those technology can be physical. Right, they can come in as a, you know, they come as a as an appliance, um, or it can be virtual appliance, meaning that software or a virtualized application is is utilized. And nowadays, more and more, of course, is the cloud, and that means they are a service that you normally purchase, and a vendor enables for you um, for for a set of um, cost on a yearly, by yearly, three yearly, whatever basis. Typically, physical appliances, because we're talking about networking and visibility, offer the ability to really give a lot of performance. And this means they are viewing a copy of the, of the traffic um, in terms of the visibility on the network traffic. And the advantage of, of looking at a, a passive, let's say, traffic that is not flowing, um, like when they tap, when they take a copy, um, not passing through directly through the appliance, but actually taking a copy, and that's called tapping, is that it reduces interruption of network communication. Um, and, and, you know, these equipments, of course, if they do sit in between the communication, then they are susceptible to bring everything down should they actually go out of service. And therefore, um, looking at the traffic path um, moving um, across the network um, has to be decided uh, are they, are they, are they, um, are they with, with great attention. Now, deploying security tools in a, in a um, sort of a out-of-pound or passive, as it's called, fashion means traffic is seen um, um, off a copy of that traffic or they call it um, tap essentially and the traffic is not interfered with and the appliance that is doing it just captures copies of traffic from those um, locations that they've been provided with in contrary inline deployment are, are also limited um, because they have a lot of performance issues um, so that you can actually um, 
monitor things live, and that's the benefit. But unfortunately, A, the performance, because it's the old way of doing, you know, if you remember the unified um, threat management, UTMs, where typically SSL offloading was done so that you can see encrypted traffic when people really realize, you know, encrypted traffic is really commandeered badly by the cyber attackers. The first reaction was enabling either a dedicated um, gateway or a sort of a multi-layer um, services enabled under one chassis, you know, also known UTMs, um, to decrypt the um, HTTPS traffic. Um, and then inspect, scan, and then basically re-encrypt um, and then send it off to, on its way to the downstream users. And that typically you know, provides um, good visibility, um, but mostly this is becoming an Achilles heel because performance is going to be quite a lot. And not everyone is going to afford um, you know, a beefy machine that can actually sit in line and, um, and, and really go with this um, decrypt are the you know are the um, breakneck sp- speed typically people really um, reacted to that by not really um, decrypting certain traffics and compliance came in and, and making sure that you know typically like banks and and, and traffic that are susceptible to to privacy between user and provider are not intercepted. But of course, you know, as attackers will know, they will then go ahead and sit uh, the watering hole and, and basically infiltrate those organizations that they know that their traffic are not going to be, um, you know, SSL offloaded and therefore, you know, hide within the, um, within the, within the traffic. What can be done about that? We're going to come into that because it's part of the, of the topic that I'm going to be covering as of, as of, as of the show um, this week. Now, those are the typical tools that you will be using. And the finally, um, the final concept that I will need to basically um, lay out before we get into into the main topic is to understand about network. Um, um, and these are how they are segmented, right? Typically, um, segmentation is based on level of trust, which means you will trust things inside your network, you know, typically, and not trust things outside of your network, naturally. Um, if things outside need basically continuous access to things inside, you will use what is called a DMZ, demilitarized zone. And segmentation typically is accomplished through physical or logical you know, delineation or dividing the network through maybe VLANs, virtual lines, or maybe ACLs, access control list, or, you know, as more and more is important, uh, by security group tags. And security group tags typically are going above the reliance of the physical part of the network and really segmenting the business as need of the different needs for for the business. So there can be a group of endpoints, servers, switches, routers that can be part of a group of tags um, irrespective of geographically where they are located or what kind of business functions are, um, are actually needed for. So you attach tags as you see the business, 
not necessarily, you know, falling back and limited by the network segmentation or the le- network layout that has already been put in place. And one thing we know about cybersecurity, the network doesn't change much, right? Because it's rigid, it's very hard to really resegment or redesign. And maybe in this day and age, people who might have designed this network 10, 15 years ago have moved on. And typically large organizations are reluctant to really redesign. So your virtual lines or the logical division or physical division of the network stays with you for a considerable amount of time. Whereas group tags um, alleviates that sort of a rigidity out of the network segmentation and assign um, tags as the business uh, moves and evolves. And therefore, it keeps pace with the need of developing the, the, the security posture of the organization, the business need, and also, of course, reaction to an event that actually needs to be dealt with. So, you know, you can be physical, um, maybe logical, um, like VLANs, or um, access control, or nowadays um, SGC, um, SGT rather, security group tags. Now, the tools um, that are typically used for network and feasibility are, of course, um, the firewall can provide some of those. Um, it can be a, a, an IDS, um, intrusion detection and prevention systems, of course, content filters, um, and of course, network access control. And these are really the typical, um, you know, good old way, still reliable um, way to um, to look at the network in terms of protocols and actually look at the traffic and use the traffic as a way to um, to prevent attacks and to see attacks and to provide feasibility. And if I open a um, just a um, a window here, I have done a. Um, um, a show about the network feasibility. You can go back to that show. It wasn't too long ago, but certainly you can actually have a look. And the show number is number 85. Turn your network into a sensor. It's worth having a look at that episode. Now, the next thing, of course, is one of those tools is the packet capture. Um, And as an analyst and investigator or a security um, guru, Technically, you will spend most of your time looking at events that are basically either occurring live or maybe have occurred, um, and therefore so that you can identify attacks um, as they, you know, as they happen, um, maybe even live. And forensics, you know, tend to be a sort of a reactive. Um, activity. So part of the of the job of a security analyst is really, you know, is to to just stitch together um, what may have happened in the past. And one of those tools that really is, that are inevitable, is capturing the event from, from the past. One way to do this is to capture the network traffic associated with the event, and therefore, you know, the packet capture. Um, but of course, this needs um, a great deal of resources, right? Because um, capturing the network traffic associated with, with an event um, means you have to have the robustness of the equipment to do it so, um, you know, avoid and, and really put and threat carefully, I should say, uh, not to slow down the um, the network. Um, for example, an IPS will likely tell you when an attack has happened and, and it will tell you what exactly were involved, you know, maybe the upstream or if it's within the network, uh, the different part of your network uh, machines, you know, the end, the target, the victim, etc., 
but it will not be able to to see all the details of the of the event right so seeing the event can be useful um, for a typical investigation um, and that's why some organization need to place a tap into the network so that you capture the whole the whole traffic so you can deploy a capture tool uh, maybe on different segment of the network and that normally comes with a you know with a lot of difficulties and inflexibility sometimes let alone the the needed equipment cost and robustness etc now netflow now netflow is a protocol to alleviate all of that and it's a um you know both of course netflow and packet capture i should say first so that i can contrast are method to record network traffic um, for looking at it at the latest stage right to provide maybe alarming um um to to the teams and you know maintaining packet capture typically has a higher cost in comparison to netflow but you know but it provides more details some organizations some businesses um, require um, especially definitely large organizations they require bucket level details to maybe due to a compliance or maybe some regulations that they fall under and this includes basically storing that data for a minimum period of time right maybe six months maybe 18 months maybe sometimes three years and, and so on it depends on the criticality of the compliance requirement and compliance and costs are just some of the factors really to consider when when choosing you know which approach is good for you right whereas now um, netflow is, is slightly different so many organizations and definitely investigators typically when we go on site you know one of the best thing that you can be given is tons of data um, because that really gives you definitely enough to play with and there is not um, basically you know enough data that you can say no to every data that you can be given is really a luxury so many typical analysts ask if there is a detailed recording of the event, um, which then means a packet capture at most. But we know packet capture normally is you know you know comes with the issues that I that I defined earlier, and and it's the most absolute method to view what took place during an event, and it's not cheap, but it's the best. Now, what is then essentially? Um, the more agile, the more sleek, if I call it that way, less um, cost effective, you know, here comes NetFlow, is one technology that is definitely gaining popularity for visibility and monitoring internal networks, for threats, um, um, essentially, um, investigation and visibility. And it's, um, it's, it stands for network flow, net flow, network flow. Um, and it's, it's a type of monitoring, right? Many tools support net flow, but many network collectors only focus on the, on the, on the network trend. Where does net flow come from? And of course, that question will be answered in part two which was released january 28 2023 episode 104 what is netflow protocol used for part two enjoy netflow is a feature that was introduced um, um, by cisco on its routers um, back in 1996 and it was a way to provide the ability to collect um, ip network traffic um, as it enters or exits an interface right look interface not necessarily from outside to inside or, or the or the inside to outside 
And and this is by analyzing the data provided by NetFlow. It's the is is the way to actually look at the feasibility as a whole of the network, and therefore the network becomes as a, a sort of a sensor. A network administrator can then really determine great deal of stuff um, by um, such as the source and destination of traffic, etc. And I'll get into the component that makes the net NetFlow, but. Typically, a flow monitoring setup um, consists of three main components. Um, a flow exporter, um, basically some sort of equipment that can aggregate packets into flows of data. Um, you know, and, and there are certain part of the equipments that actually can provide um, NetFlow. Not necessarily just Cisco, but quite a lot of equipments actually support that. And, and those then export those flows record towards, a, um, towards what is called a collector. A, an agent, a machine that can actually then take that. Um, now, flow exporter um, is a fancy name of just saying your switch, your router, your firewall, and typically, if you log into your um, to your um, equipment, you can easily determine whether they support NetFlow. Best way to start: just have a look at the technical documentation to say how do I, you know, enable um, NetFlow, and and if they do have a feature to enable NetFlow, they will typically give you. You know, enable it so you basically switch a knob, and then they will tell you, okay, um, where shall I send the flow? So they'll ask you, you know, the IP address typically, and then they will say, okay, where is the what I, what what port shall I communicate through? And typically it is two zero five five um twenty um two thousand fifty five, and that's the flow exporter configured exactly and then the other one is the other end you know the flow collector um the the port that um two twenty 55 is pointing to a flow collector and that's the IP address that you've typed as well on the flow exporter and that is responsible for reception and of course storage and pre-processing and a lot of fancy stuff going on which is outside of the remit of this show but basically you know other great um, detail it just gives the collection of the flow so that it really deduplicates because there's a lot of back and forth of traffic um, in terms of the network and therefore it can deduplicate and get rid of anything that are duplicates. It can stitch together as sessions of traffic go back and forth and discontinue and then restart. It can stitch together so that it can follow um, a conversation that has started and don't, don't see a single conversation, you know, as a multiple conversation. So it can actually really do a lot of pre-processing before it then sends to the next hop. And this is the third component, analysis, an analyst or the dashboard or the management console, if you want to call it, right? So flow exporter, flow collector, and then analysis application. And this is basically, you know, where the brain sits. It analyzes, you know, received flow, you know, from the flow collector that the flow exporter exported to the flow collector. And that data is then built and contextualized and then looked at and passed on to machine learning and all sorts of fancy tools and technology underneath the hood so that you can they can actually do, you know, profiling um, and really then come up with a picture of exactly what is going on on the network. Now, routers and switches that support NetFlow can collect IB traffic statistics, right? So, and there are a number of um, um, part of the network that are collected. So let's get into what exactly makes a NetFlow 
in fact, before we do that, um, let's 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 continue a bit and 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 say definitely, you know, just to really lay the foundation. This this technology is useful to identify network, um, not necessarily from a security point of view, but maybe troubleshooting like network peaks and outages um, and other things that might be um, related to network day to day management. Um, it doesn't help much for. Um, um, in terms of um, pinpointing other very great details, but it's definitely going to show you um, quite a lot of information um, in terms of um, typical high-level um, troubleshooting. And I should point out, it's not only um, NetFlow um, that is available to achieve this kind of activities, but there are variations of different flow kind of protocols. Another one is SFlow, which uses a sort of a, um, a sampling rather than collection of certain points of the, of the communication. Um, NetFlow is a true flow technology um, that uses the cached flow entries. Um, and I should point out there are other um, flow um, protocols such as SFlow, um, which uses a different method, which I'll come into it, than, than NetFlow. But for now, let's have a look at exactly the components of a, um, of a NetFlow. Now, the components are what exactly the protocol takes out of the network and uses um, as part of the investigation or feasibility. The first is the interface. Um, second is the source IP address, um, the destination, of course, the IP protocol, the source uh, for the UDB or the TCP, um, the destination port, um, and then, of course, the, the type of, of service. Now, those are the components that makes up um, the typical um, NetFlow. In comparison to the other protocol, flow protocols such as SFlow, um, NetFlow you know, selects those fields, seven of them, um, to really then make um, a determination of what is going on on the network. Now, by collecting alone, of course, the protocol doesn't make um, a lot of sense of, of that, um, of the network. It passes this and builds a baseline um, that can be... Um, that can be any any anywhere between a week to a month, um, so that it bases it baselines the um, the communications um, of different entities of the network, um, and then uses that as a as a sort of a way to delineate what is normal from what is um, abnormal. Um, now, those seven entries, of course, means there is no weight on the network. Remember, it's not inline. It doesn't introduce um, latency. There is nothing to um, decrypt, etc. cetera. Um, although, you know, there is a... Um, um, component, um, especially on the Cisco um, offerings um, called ETA, Encrypted Traffic Analytics, which basically means, um, you know, the flow um, of the network can be used to determine whether the um, traffic that is encrypted carries malicious activities, uh, which really then helps um, the um, feasibility of the network of the encrypted traffic and remember as i said earlier um, to see an encrypted traffic you need to obviously um, decrypt it first which means um, a compliance issue b definitely slowness of the of the network and maybe sometimes some other troubles related to corruptions of data um, whereas now looking at the looking at the encrypted traffic but also passing this now um, because taking it is one thing but 
the traffic is passed on to a backhand uh, machinery that determines and actually baselines to see whether this is a tantamount to a malicious carrying um, traffic and not necessarily just a benign. And it can tell benign traffic from maliciously um, encrypted um, um, traffic and therefore can then alert the administrators which then they can attach other actions into that um, into that traffic um, entities whether it's the sender um, or whether it's the receiver now that's the net flow um, the other protocol is of course um, mostly people talk about is the edge flow this one is doesn't rely on those sampling of like seven, you know seven components of the of the of the of the traffic um, it uses a random sampling of packets or application um, the especially the application layer um, operation um, and a time based sampling um, is, is is basically what is what is really um, used so though so it looks at the traffic and then it takes a snapshot um, um, of small um, components, um, not too long. Um, I can't remember exactly how long the capture lasts, but it's something that doesn't interfere my, um, with, with the data storage because when you say take a snapshot, that means a lot of storage. Um, and in comparison to NetFlow, you don't have to worry about a lot of storage. Of course, there is still storage and depending on the requirement of the organization, you might need you know um, just a normal size or you might need a great deal of, of storage capacity. Um, but certainly the SFlow and, and the and the random sampling takes up packets, um, which then obviously not necessarily taps um, or the span mirror ports, um, but it's certainly um, a lot more than, than the typical um, net flow. Um, another flow option to be familiar with um, um, while we talk about NetFlow is the IP flow information export, or it's called um, IP fix protocol. Um, this is um, not from Cisco, it's uh, from the IETF, um, um, and it was proposed to standard um, as part of the, um, obviously at the time of um, NetFlow version 9. Now, the forensic value from NetFlow tool is, is to be able to really then quickly um, allow you to investigate um, the network that has um, that you've enabled NetFlow on. Um, and really, this means, of course, um, any routers, which is um, wireless access point, typically all the Cisco equipment, really, um, virtual servers and so on that have flow enable are essentially you know security checkpoints right so and this is where the concept um what i was saying turning your network into a sensor um means basically and netflow is essentially a network um record right not full tap of the traffic but a record of made made out of those seven components that i talked about so the actual events are not reported but the details about the events are Right. So, and of course, this is then added with additional enrichment um, um, data, such as threat intelligence, um, which is sitting on the analysis machine or the the, the monitoring site component, um, not the obviously the the collector, um, not the exporter. So, in a way, then in that case, it's not really replacing um, the equipment that is being watched, right? So this is not a replacement of a firewall or of an IPS or or of an email gateway or endpoint. It's basically a complementary layer of security without much of a burden. And and of, you can decide on where to put um, the network, um, the NetFlow enablement, which equipment sits at a strategic point of the network that you want to see those seven components so that then you can actually build a contextual information um, 
and have a record of events um, that you want to see that are part of the, um, the network. This information can, can, of course, help investigators really identify, um, but also understand an incident from the time it basically came about and touched the network and any other associated um, devices because, you know, the, the um, victim as well as the target, um, um, the, the, the attacker, I should say, all of them are recorded, you know, the length and so on. Um, now, the latest and most... Um, I should say the details first found um, on looking at this um, can be different types, right? Um, it can be a, a typical machine that is sending high number of traffic um, in comparison to the baseline that's been done before, right? So typical baselining, you know, why is it sending so much traffic um, in, a, in a purse? Um, or why is it sending so much traffic um, today and it hasn't done so in the last, let's say, 30 days? Um, or maybe a machine is collecting a fast amount of data, right? Data hoarding. Um, and typically attackers normally stage their attack into different phases. And that phase that I've described is data hoarding where, you know, the next is, you can guess it's exfiltration so before it happens the machine will be um, seeing a huge amount of traffic coming from one machine or many machines um, that goes beyond the baseline and they will say what is going on there's a lot of you know data pouring in into this um, device from all part of the network or maybe from just one or two machines um, right um, and that normally will be will be alerting another one Reconnaissance. Uh, a machine is issuing a lot of scan, and typically attackers will come in and actually um, push a um, network scan, um, stealthy, you know, NCAT, um, the typical go to tools, without it knowing NCAT, for example. It will know, you know, this machine has issued um, quite a huge number of IP address scan um, in, in, on the network, and that would know. Now, remember, there is no capture of traffic, so we're not really capturing here the traffic. Um, we're not looking at the, um, um, an agent sitting on all machines reporting all the activities, none of that. Um, another um, typical um, will be, for example, a command and control. Um, a machine might be actually um, going out to a well-known command and control server. And yes, um, this tool, NetFlow, has a, a monitoring um, machine basically sitting um, at the central nerve, which knows exactly where the, where the address um, destination um, basically is because it records the destination and it will then know that destination is not good. And it uses the enrichment part of the threat intelligence that is added value basically instead of just feasibility to to then really discern that this machine is communicating to a well-known command and control uh, machinery now this all of this information can help investigate identify understand the the, the incident um, you know really as a day-to-day -day either feasibility or maybe a after the fact um, investigation the latest and most of course detailed version of netflow um, because there are different versions and there are um, upgrades and, and amelioration is version um, 9 which contains tons of details about the event um, including of course the network information etc etc 
Now, um, of course, there are always caveats that comes with it. Um, some um, investigators might require specific details, um, you know, detailed data, and of course, NetFlow doesn't provide that. And if in, if those records are very detailed, at some point, um, those might not actually be necessarily um, competing with a full um, packet capture because NetFlow doesn't contain all the details of an event, right? It captures a component of the network. Now, many flow solutions include data um, modification features, um, such as deduplication, recording sti- record stitching, I should say, um, and these are helped to, to um, aid the analyst to view a lot of moving parts without really um, uh, duplicating um, the effort so that the data that has flown from one machine to different machines is seen as one, you know, one, one data rather than multiple um, data that is coming from that are coming to different machines. Um, of course, there is always the downside of this type of behavior um, when there is a corruption of data, and that the tools are built to be resilient and to make sure really things are really strengthened. So multiple checks are done, and therefore um, the deduplications are not losing real data um, but it's just getting rid of the things that are actually already being seen for example if you want to see a typical user's laptop um, accessing a typical day-to-day website it could have many records um, basically representing the traffic that is leaving his machine um, and and then coming back um, later on from the remote website that he visited. Um, now, there is a stitching that, that, that is at play here, um, and events are stitched, um, and it will show the user's um, particular remote um, resources as well as the his machine. This is um, why it's basically recommended to, to leverage a... Um, Essentially, not really recommended, but this is why the system has a central management that can actually provide um, a sort of a means to put everything together so that you can see all the communications in one um, single view. Now, what is it good for? Great deal, as you have heard. Um, It allows you to really not... Um, commit a lot of resources, basically just turning onto your network and using your network as a sensor. Um, It doesn't actually then um, interrupt or slow down um, the network. Um, It doesn't impact on compliance, etc., because there's nothing really revealed um, in in terms of the data um, of the traffic um, other than what you already have, on the um, on the on the flow on the protocol, and it doesn't certainly um, sort of a um, sit in between, um, and that makes a lot easier for you just to use this tool as a sort of a sideline that can actually watch and receives um, data. There is a lot of configuration concepts that are actually um, aiding the organizations to build the most effective way of actually putting this in place. But, as, you know, but the start is you know, checking whether your um, existing um, switches, routers are equipped um, with the NetFlow capability of exporting to, a, to, a, to, to another machine, which is basically a collector. And what do you get? Well, you get it from a vendor. You definitely get a collector and you get the management, which is the central nerve. Um, and those at minimum can 
constitute a NetFlow um, enabled network. Um, so you'll have your existing tools that should support SFlow or NetFlow. There are JFlow and others. Um, on all of those, of course, it depends on what vendor you buy this from. And as long as your equipments have certain um, flow capability export, you will be able to take advantage of, of this technology to then you know, turning your network into a sensor. And it aids a curb the service of attack and minimizes it so that it can actually show you. But also it helps your investigators and security analyst to really then um, know your network is healthy. And if something is needed to be investigated, is a great tool for the security analyst. And that's it. What a wrap. Thanks for lasting this long. And as the 2023 came and went, um, I can't help but really reflect on the incredible journey we've um, we've really been um, through. Each week I released an episode, um, which is a testament really to the commitment um, for you as a listener, but also for me as a content creator, um, providing a lot of people growth, but also helping the larger community to create a safer world. Um, and your support has been tremendous and encouraging. And thank you for that. Now, from looking at the global issue to exploring new technology, um, making visits to different parts of the globe and reporting content um, just to make that world safer. And as we step forward into the new year, we will carry forward the lessons we learned and also the inspirations gained from this episode, I hope, um, continuing, of course, my mission to affect a positive change, a cybersecurity positive change, that is. So thank you for being a vital part of this incredible journey. Towards a better world, safer world. Until we meet again next week, take care.